Ja, Lexus coming out of the World Cup. Well, a few seconds ago. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the Brazilians scoring uh, against uh, what has certainly been for much of this game for the last 70 minutes or so. Um, a very resilient defensive display uh, on the part of uh, their opponents there. Uh, but uh, it seems uh, the deadlock now are broken there. Uh, and uh, yeah, so you might want to comment on that as well. Love to hear your thoughts and uh, share any reflections on the latest coming out of that uh, global spectacle of uh, the beautiful game. We're going to take a brief break now. When we come back, Sinesipo Maninjwa, independent market commentator, analyst and, and uh, a commentator, is my guest. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the latest out in company news and in our political economy. Yeah, 22 minutes after 7pm tonight and uh, we go straight into our wrap of the top business story. Snesipo joins me now on the line. Good evening to you, Snesipo. Welcome. Um, evening, Aya. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And you? Good, 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 good. I want us to still start out tonight in Finland. Uh, Sibanya Stillwater, uh, that large mining behemoth. Uh, yeah, they had signaled, of course, early on in the year that they were set to make an investment in um, vertically integrated operations that would give them a play out in the world of battery storage. And, of course, the starting point for them, insofar as that is concerned, would be an investment in a liquid hydrox- uh, lithium hydroxide mine. And, of course, we know lithium is also a critical input into uh, lithium batteries. Uh, what's the latest insofar as this is concerned? All right, so as you indicated before, they had announced in the market that they'd be looking to make an investment. And today they effectively announced that they now hold about 85% effective control and interest in the pro- project. I hope I'm saying it right, Kaliba, which is, um, and so the pro- it's a project finance transaction and, um, they have approved about 588 million euros. And the expectation is um, they're going to begin beginning construction um, quite soon. And they had uh, released um, some of the results that they had from the feasibility test earlier on in the year, which was initially completed in February and then updated in October again. And uh, it sort of supported the the, the, the rationale for the investment um, based on where we're moving in terms of even post-COP 2027, uh, on the energy transition and how everybody's looking to um, play within the battery and uh, getting within the metals involved within battery specifically. Um, yeah, so that's what they, they made an equity investment. Um, um, they're going to do another further capital raise, another 104 uh, million uh, euros. It's about two... The idea is to just build the first two open pit mines and then um, they'll then commence with the four mines. Now, now, so it's still very much yeah. in initial, initial phase. But, and what I'm quite interested in, Snesipo, maybe are two related issues. The one is um, on the sort of governance and ownership side of Kelleber here, which is the entity, Um sort of what Sibanya has had to do to uh, get to a stage where they own 85% of this entity. And then, of course, I guess um, what the next few years of capital investments are going to have to look like before they're able to roll off the production line, some of the batteries they're going to be producing. 
All right. So um, what they did is that they, um, Kivila, which is the, uh, the asset owner of the specific mine, um, they first, number one, um, they were pre-entered rights. Uh, that's the one you had in. They first made the initial acquisition. And then further towards that, they also did a direct share issue of about to the new shares, which effectively increased the shareholding from the minority shareholding to the current 85%. Um, so that they managed, it, it, it was because I think they needed the equity funding mm-hmm. aspect. They needed the equity check uh, because they also, on the other side, also raising additional um, credit facilities. Um, they said that the minimum they're looking at is about $250 million, um, Years and that will take the project from um, to construction um, to, to fully fund its construction to commissioning. However, you also then have the equity check of um, the 146. So the total project size is 585 million, but it's broken up into different components. So um, one of the things that was proved. Um, because if you look at the debt equity measure, which is um, your total facility, your debt in the transaction being a minimum of 250, and then having to actually sign the physical check uh, with the direct share issue, it shows, um, although there is a big appetite in the market for um, your energy um, transition metals and lithium, there is still... Um, hesitation from financial institutions even globally to go fund aggressively so it, that's for me one of the one of the outtakes and I was actually surprised because I would think in more larger more developed markets the appetite for um, debt funding would be higher but you still even though the appetite, the appetite is not there but you still have the same um traditional project finance risks uh, within construction because I think we've seen with construction and I'm going to mention the example of the guy says so what happens with construction you think it's going to cost you this and then if life happens to you mm. so it's, you still inherit the same amount of risk which was, I thought was quite interesting yeah and then I guess uh, you know the other element is around the potential returns here I mean um, uh, when I see a post-tax uh, internal rate of return of 20% and, uh, you know, some of the things that these guys are mooting, even on conservative assumptions on the price per tonne of uh, lithium hydroxide, uh, it seems, certainly from where they are sitting, that this might be a very lucrative undertaking. Add to that a massive growing demand for new energy vehicles and other applications for what it is they're going to produce. And um, uh, it seems that this uh, might be not just about greening Sabanya's operations uh, or their own ambitions about uh, where their emissions are going to be, but potentially uh, a massive play that could be a springboard into that European and even global market. All right. So I'm going to say that all of these, uh, I think it's because I've worked on too many of these things. These are all lies. These are your biggest case scenarios. No one is going to say that the project, these assumptions are always based on a specific um, parameters of a um, transaction and, and specific. It's not just your revenue assumptions, also your costing and as well as the quantum of your capex and how much when you're building the financial model, which um, the output being the internal rate of return, 
how accurate you are in that estimation. We've all seen how construction goes. I mean, does it really matter, Snezibo, uh, whether the, there's accuracy? I mean, it, it sounds to me like there's a lot of bone throwing um, in some of the assumptions that are made and the modeling. Um, I mean, do people really make investment decisions based on what would be said here? Yes, they do. I used to do this as a day job. Yes, they do. Um, so, um, yes, they do. Because remember, you want to get the veracity of your assumptions. All of it is an assumption because you are... In, in, in the most simplistic terms, you're presenting a business plan with the hope of the, your business plan, um, the, the, your, your assumptions of the future actually coming to fruition. It does not mean that they will. So you've got two, you've got two base level scenarios. Um, for banks, they have what you call a bank casing, which is sort of like your conservative estimate. And then you have the management case, which is your, what management came to uh, pump, especially when they're speaking to investors or they release an announcement, they're going to tell you the best possible numbers. Not because that they're inaccurate, but because in their crystal ball, they were assuming that all the base case scenarios, like I said, revenue is mere one component. The most difficult time, the biggest risk factor is from construction to commissioning. Mm. Then you need to pray to baby Jesus that your price holds out because you've got a minimum price and a maximum price. The minimum price has to be met because you now have added on debt to this. You've got an interest rate curve that's going upwards. You hope that inflation has slowed down so that interest rate has come down by the time you're in commissioning phase and you're earning revenue. So, like I said, we all, these are all crystal ball assumptions. Not to say that they're incorrect or anything wrong. It's just they are assumptions, and I'm always hesitant to um, believe because even when you look at the discount rate, um, high level, when they say 27% post tax IRR, they're bullish. I don't, I'll give, I'll give well, them that. Well, I mean, I'll Google, to be fair, that. oh, sorry, um, you know, uh, sensible to be fair. I mean, they are also saying that their assumptions of the tonnage price for what they're going to produce um, is coming in much, much lower than the future forecasts of some independent people, independent and inverted commas, but people who sit outside of their operation. So, I mean, you know, is it fair for us to say these guys are selling us the best case scenario because they're, they're saying, well, there are other, you know, scenarios that are out in the market that are probably much more favorable than the one that they are presenting? Number one, uh, they're not selling, like I said, they're not really selling your dreams. They're just presenting their best possible put forward because you need mm. to put on. They have to raise turns at a minimum 250 million euros of debt. They cannot say anything less I guess, yeah. than the best case <laughs> scenario. However, even if, the revenue component is merely the revenue component is merely one component of this project. You still need to hope in your capital expenditure, your commissioning, your your fixed cost, your cost assumptions, your price of debt. Those are all outside the revenue component. Mm, they, mm. It's always easy to pump the revenue assumptions, but they don't. And then you have to secure the client base, and you might not get the prices even if it would be lower. 
And remember, let's also factor in the time value of money. Your assumption today does not take into consideration what things will look like when you're at commissioning stage. It is, it is, uh, it is, it, it can be better than expected, but almost 99% I've never seen what your initial assumptions have been and the realization theme of equal merit. It's either up or downwards, but it depends on which side you're swinging on. And remember, and this is also I think it's important to understand, is that Ibanya is South African-based. Yes, they are now about to add foreign debt into their balance sheet. And although predominantly they earn U.S. dollars, and you also have to forecast, again, other macroeconomic conditions. Like, mm. There's so many things that could go wrong, which then also speaks to why, the if you look at, again, I said, the look at the debt equity aspect of this transaction, why it was not, I would expect it, I would expect them to be more highly geared. And why they're not highly geared? Because any funder is looking at this possible, would be looking at this possible scenario play. It's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying anyone's lying. I'm just pointing out what could go wrong. And when I look at a 27%, I like, like I read it again, and I was like, post-tax, are you rich, 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 rich? Mm. But... So let's, about, let's, you know let, let's leave that one just for a second, uh, because um, we also saw some news coming out of Standard Bank as well. And it seems they are buoyant somewhat on the back of, uh, you know, over 300 basis points, or over three percentage point increase in the interest rate, which has certainly buoyed their net interest income. Uh, but yeah, how has the other side of that income equation looked like in terms of some of their non-interest uh, uh, revenue that's come in? All right, so um, Standard Bank um, did a voluntary update in terms of um, how their uh, numbers are looking at. Quite important to uh, look at that as much as, you know, we've, we've had inflation and um, pressure, uh, interest rates have increased everywhere except for Zambia, which they've declined. Uh, yeah. Except for them being in some of the some of the countries that they operate in, but I think it's also very important to also look at um, rebasing their results in completeness. Um, they had the liberty transaction which concluded, so that brought up significant um, increase in um, non-interest revenue for them and uh, non-interest revenue. Um, it was also supported by increase in transactional activity and trading revenue. I think this is fundamentally underpinned by the recovering economy. Now we're all back. Insurance earnings have also grown because now people are back at work, so they're paying those premiums. What was also quite important for me, which is quite strange, which I found good, was that um, in terms of the impairment, um, remember when we entered lockdown, I think in 2020, um, there were quite a few people who had, who had made arrangements, both from um, a consumer as well as uh, business clients. These arrangements have now come to an end as uh, everyone has gotten back to work. And that has helped quite, um, that has increased collections as well as increased normalization because of the payment holidays. So it's sort of like uh, some of the increase in payments because there are those who are struggling now because of higher interest rates. But there was a portion of the book that recovered mm. as, um, as part of these, um, interest, um, these payment holidays expired. Um, and um, yes, 
And on yes. impairments, Nesipo, I mean, you know, how has that looked? So it depends on which segment. Like I said, the the consumer, they were all strained by the people paying how it's going to end. Um, um, so business commercial clients um, have, in terms of impairments, have remained quite consistent. Um, and in some cases, normalized. Um, normalized because there has been quite a bit of um, um, tightening, tightening in terms mm. of um, um, requirements to borrow. Um, so there is quite it's it 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 is it, it is quite quite significant. So it's it, it's been rather flat. I think that for me it was more, the the biggest story I think had to be with a, a consumer book, it book. Yeah. And, and then Transnet, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of fanfare was made around them opening up uh, their rail network to third-party operators, uh, private sector players there. Um, and it seems, yeah, I guess not um, the type of reception they would have expected from the marketplace. Um, yes and no. They were told by everyone, you can't give out contracts for two years. They were told. So in some, they they. At some level, you can say they might have expected and the so reality is that they they should have anticipated it. Um, the idea was that um, a big, a significant, significantly transit freight rail it has been under a lot of pressure, specifically from the miners, because of its inability to meet up uh, the increase in demand and also the various force measures that have been declared in the past, I would say, 18 months. You had the July unrest. You had another force majeure in February. You had the strike force majeure. Then you had another. They had quite a few force majeures. So that has impacted quite negatively, especially on miners who were on a commodity price swing upwards. So in order to address some of the concerns by the market participants, they went through the process where they tender, opened up the tender to, um, opened up the tender to allow for private, uh, private players to uh, operate uh, right? but they only set it for two years which unfortunately for the amount of capex that you need to invest and also what most people don't seem to understand is well as um, a form of transport and also from an asset perspective it is not a very high return out of all the infrastructure you can do rail has one of the worst um, internal rates of returns from you are only, it's more of a social play than mm. an economic value trade. So sure. two years for a PPP basically is not going to work. Yeah. You have to give operators because of the significant amount of capex involved. Mm. So what what nice, like I said, the investments are real are nice from a country perspective and a social perspective because mm. of the multiplier effect of it. But it doesn't usually have a very, very high yeah. RRR. Sure. So yeah. Maybe just the last one with the 30 seconds that we have now. What's this that's happened now at uh, the SPA group? Uh, of course, uh, an outcome of the uh, reports looking into allegations of racism, discrimination against you know, some of the independent uh, retailers who uh, would operate with uh, the SPA group. And uh, this uh, loan here of 8 million rand, which uh, I guess many reports are suggesting was a fictitious loan. I don't know what that loan is. So of selling unprofitable stores to black people. They have the Honorable Mr. Richard Spur. I'm thinking of inviting to your show. He's defending them. <laughs> He's defending them in this ongoing massive mm. 
where they um, sell um, corporate-owned spa, spa stores that are unprofitable for nominal value, but the store in itself loses money, yeah. uh, some of the amount of a million rand a month. So it effectively would turn the entrepreneur into a dead trap sooner than later. So, let, let's pause there for now and take a quick spot. But when we come back, we'll continue on the spot issue. 17 minutes before 8 p.m., we wrap up our business wrap uh, with Snesipo Mani and Joanne De. Snesipo, just as we wrap up, uh, you were still indicating that the allegations leveled against SPA had to do with uh, them offloading unprofitable stores to uh, uh, black retailers. Uh, so uh, maybe let's pick it up there and uh, just briefly, I guess, give us a sense of uh, how that fits into the storyline around this um, allegation of a fictitious loan. All right. So one of such um, retailer bought a store and uh, there was an ongoing matter, some drama on the store itself. So they then, um, he then made a loan. Um, Spa then granted him a loan, uh, which is based on the value to the depot. They then made a a payment arrangement where they would pay him monthly as some sort of marketing support, uh, marketing support uh, for uh, marketing services that they contribute as part of as a franchise holder. Now, what makes this quite I let us okay, the let us just always, always also go to a step back is that from a start, the quantum of this is near fractions of spa's earnings. So it would not qualify for any specific um, um, regulatory um, audit finding. However, however, the, what was quite interesting for me was that this was to be signed off by the CEO. Um, so like I said, he, this guy, he bought a, a spa retailer um, for a thousand and nominal. However, the store was losing 500,000 per month. And uh, the franchisee and the businessman both um, agreed that the store was unprofitable. So he said they were losing 500,000 rand. It turns out it was more than a million rand per month. Mm. Now, then they signed, that was after the first contract, 1,000 rand nominal value takes over. It's not costing you a million rand a month. The thing is costing you money. They then had a second purchase agreement of 8 million rand. Which was what was owed to the distribution center of spa that would yes. have stocked up this uh, entity with food and liquor. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They then, they then, as spa, then would give make payments to him as a marketing contribution, which is equal to the value of the loan installment. Hmm. So, in a sense, in a sense, they are settling their own loan. Hmm. So this is for me when I was looking at the counting of the debit and credit of this whole thing. Um, The understanding was that eventually the the store would turn around. However, there was a whistleblower (laughs) as well. And um, whistleblower who alerted the board of this Mm. this practice or this habit. Although in a report that was commissioned by SPA, of which they set the parameters of such reports, um, they found in favor of the company in terms of they were not, um, the, 
they, they, they found in favor of the company that this is not racist, but it's just weird that all the black people get the stores that don't make money. Exactly. It's awkward. It's just awkward. We'll just accept the awkward and the pure coincidence of this whole thing. I like that. Pure coincidence. Let's, let's, pure leave, it there. let's leave it there for tonight. I can't go and there. Pure coincidence, but it's okay. It's all right. Pure let's leave it there. Uh, always a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. That is uh, Snesipo Maninjo, independent market commentator, analyst and CA, joining us for our wrap of the top business stories.